This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Well, this morning, we want to return back to our series in the book of Romans. So you might take your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 5. You know, we have had a short summer interlude where we've been... uh, examining the uh, parables and some of the great psalms of Scripture. And uh, now we turn our attention back to this, uh, what I think is the epistle of all epistles, and that is the book of Romans. And I want want you to know, folks, this morning the timing probably could not be better from a current event standpoint. In fact, it almost seems like as you turn to Romans 5, which discusses this great doctrine of justification, it almost seems like we have purposefully coordinate it with some of the great current events that right now are breaking around us. I don't know if you realize, but there has been a momentous agreement that has been signed between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church here just recently in the month of July. And if you haven't heard about that, I want to tell you some of what has actually taken place because it fits almost precisely with where we are in this book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5. You know, some 450 years ago, the Catholic Church was torn in two over the issue that we'll talk about this morning. It's the doctrine of justification. And by justification, I hope you understand what I mean by that. I mean how one is reconciled to God. How one is made right before God. How one finds the ability to step into the presence of God and feel at peace rather than in fear. Over 450 years ago, that was an immense national topic of discussion. And the result of those discussions and those debates and ultimately those controversies was that the Catholic Church was torn in two. It was led by a young monk that you know by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had spent a great portion of his life trying to earn his way to God. He had spent countless hours in sacrifice of himself before God in penance and in prayer, giving himself in every way that he could so that he might in some way find reassurance that he was good enough for God. And yet, despite all his efforts and all his prayers and all his penance and all his sacrifice, he found himself actually in an awful limbo of fear. And out of that fear, Luther, this monk, was finally driven to the right place. He was driven to the Scriptures. And as he opened the Scriptures and examined the Scriptures and poured himself through the text of Scripture looking, searching, yearning for some sense of of assurance and satisfaction before God, he stumbled upon the passages of Romans that speaks to justification, not based on works, but justification based on the gracious provision made in Jesus Christ by faith. And suddenly a revolution began. By faith alone, by grace alone, that was the calling of Luther's followers as they began to absorb this dynamic and liberating and accurate spiritual truth. Luther had been not only bound himself, but 
He had watched others pay money to try to get the church to liberate them, and he was angry even at that. So he created this revolution. And what first started as a small protest around this doctrine called justification became an immense movement that we now look back on 450 plus years later as the Protestant Reformation. But now, this month, this month, though it didn't get world headlines on the front page, and I'll tell you some reasons why it didn't in just a moment, but this very month, the month of July, 457 years after Luther was first charged by a furious Catholic church with heresy. And then his movement was tried to be put down through brutal oppression. And then years and years of disastrous religious wars between Luther's followers and others and the Catholic Church. And then centuries of church divisions as denomination after denomination split off until we have this ungainly religious tree of which Fellowship Bible Church is just a small little twig. After all of that, 457 years later, a resolution has been reached in a joint declaration. And here's what the declaration said. I'm going to read it as the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church signed it. Together we confess, together we confess, Catholics and Lutherans are all Protestants, at least believing Protestants. We confess by grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit, any on our part. We are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our heart. Isn't that an incredible statement? <clears throat> and so what you see really in this, where'd the diagram go? Where'd my picture go up there, guys? There we go. What you see is Martin Luther finally reaching down through the ages and grabbing the hand of Pope John Paul, and we have an agreement. And what that means is throughout all the world, we will now share a common gospel. One gospel to the world, and that is not by works, not through a priest, not by any church, or not by any mother merit of our own. It's by grace alone, by faith alone we find ourselves in right standing before Jesus Christ and before God Himself. Now that is great news. And you know, I would almost want to dance and click my heels and throw a party at this point, but as good as that news is, there's some bad news. And that bad news has come out recently in a poll about America and the American public, and it concerns the doctrine in a, in a side way, it concerns the doctrine of justification. Here's what the poll said. I want you to follow logic in this. The poll said that only one out of four adults in America, even fewer teenagers, but only one out of every four adults in America believe that there is such a thing as absolute moral truth. Now what's that got to do with the doctrine of justification? Well, follow the logic. Without absolute moral truth, folks, there can be no definitive right or wrong. There's no absolute moral truth. If we can't come and say, this is right or this is wrong, we can't understand what is sin and what is not sin. 
And without right or wrong, at least a clear definition of right or wrong, there is no such thing as sin. In fact, you can almost hear our culture merge into a new concept of sin. It's now no longer sin. It's now a preference. Right? It's now a choice. And without a person stepping over the line into sin, and that without there being a concept of sin, there's no concept of judgment. And if there's no concept of judgment, then there is no need to be justified. <clears throat> no need to be saved. No need for a Savior. Now hear me, we may need Jesus' help. We may want Jesus' love. We may go to church to find inspiration in Jesus' example and hear statements, pious statements about Jesus' teaching, but America is fast moving to a place where we no longer need Jesus' blood. So as excited as I was when I read that declaration between the Catholics and the Lutheran, and their resolution after 500 years of differences over what it means to be saved, the bad news is that society generally no longer considers the subject of salvation even relevant. It's an interesting day, isn't it, in which we live. That society would now no longer get excited about what it means to be reconciled with God because we assume that we already are in some measure. Now, that's the surface. Now, as a pastor, sometimes there are events that cause people to go beyond that kind of surface kind of consideration. You know, when you see somebody murder somebody, all of a sudden sin raises its ugly head, doesn't it? When you personally are found out in an immorality, you start getting in touch with your sin nature. When you see the fact that uh, there is a person swallowed up in an addiction, and their whole life is destroyed, or you live your way, life in such a way that you destroy your whole family because of your own selfishness. When people touch those moments, suddenly they reconsider this whole issue of right and wrong and sin and unrighteousness. But it takes those kind of crises to push their face into it. More and more, at least on the surface, Americans simply assume that we are acceptable to God as we are. In fact, Time Magazine did a poll and they asked people, are you going to go to heaven? 97% of all Americans believe they're going to heaven. Now they may have questions about you, but as far as how they feel about themselves, they're going to heaven. And you know, when I read that, I thought, it's so interesting that we are at the opposite extreme of where Luther, in that small room, going without food for days, begging God to accept him. We're at the exact opposite end of where Luther was. Luther assumed his alienation from God. Luther lived in fear of how to some way find a way to be reconciled to God. Now we, on the other hand, in America, we've moved in 500 years down to the opposite end, and we presume we are acceptable as we are. And the truth is right here. It's in the middle. So what does the book of Romans have to say to us here this morning? Well, I want to first talk a little bit about just a review of the book because that's where Luther was. That's where he went to clear up his confusion. And really, that's where I think we all need to go. I wish we could take all of America through the book of Romans to help cure them of their overinflated assessment 
of themselves before God. Look at Romans chapter 1 just for a moment. In Romans 1, you know, what Romans 1 says, or it begins to unfold to us, is that men and women actually actively repudiate the living God because they understand Him to be absolutely moral. In a world of relativism, God's standard is I am absolutely, thoroughly, perfectly moral. And so in verse 18, we are found to suppress God and God's truth. See it there? We suppress God's truth so as to pursue our own unrighteousness. In verse 21, we acknowledge God. Oh yeah, we like to talk God in America today, but we don't honor Him as God. That's the way man, of, man has always been inclined. Notice in verse 25, we exchange God's truth within ourselves that God has placed there for a lie, and we end up worshiping ourselves, which is the addiction of every culture in every age. And finally, look at verse 32. Because in verse 32, rather than being ashamed of our actions, what most cultures do, cut off from a real relationship with God, is we congratulate ourselves for our indecencies. We, we say, that a boy. We revel in shame rather than being ashamed. That's how the book of Romans opens. It opens with man actively repudiating an absolutely moral God. And yet, in all that behavior, as we go our own independent way, we are surprised that our society in this twisted God kind of posture, we're surprised that our society, as we go our own pompous way, presuming our acceptance before God, we're surprised that society grows colder. We're shocked that society becomes cruder. We wonder why society seems to be in chaos. We can't seem to understand why, as we trust ourselves, that society reads like the little description in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, where it says that suddenly, as we walk away from God, presuming our acceptance, that we're filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and envy and murder and strife and deceit, where gossips and slanders, we really hate God. We're insolent, arrogant, boastful. We invent evil. Just watch the TV. We're without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And we wonder, why? What's the problem? Why are we getting these results? Well, Romans 3, if you want a good diagnosis, Romans 3 kind of serves like a chest x-ray when you go into the doctor and you say, you know, I think I'm doing all the right things, but I don't feel good. I feel sick. He says, well, let's take a chest x-ray. So you take a chest x-ray and you put it up there and what you find is Romans 3, starting in verse 10. <laughs> there is none righteous. There's not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The throat is an open grave. With your tongue you keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under your lips. Mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Oh man, I've heard that every day. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery is in their path. And you know what? There's no fear of God. You know, I was in the mall yesterday and a young man walked by me and I've seen this on a number of occasions with different advertisements, but on the front of his shirt he had the words, no fear. Seen that? 
no fear. Kind of the X-game type statement. That is an incredibly poignant summary of this world. Except it's concerning God. No fear. All presumption. All insolence and arrogance. We're okay. You must be okay. You must accept us as we are. God of love. When we shake our hand, when we don't like what He so-called brings on our country, and yet at the same time we have no interest in His diagnosis. But you know what? Romans not only gives a diagnosis, it gives a prognosis. Romans 6 you turn to Romans 6, you find there in verse 23 the prognosis. It's in one simple little phrase. It just says, for the wages of sin is what? Tell me, church. Do you believe that? The wages of sin is death. You know what's ironic? As I even tell you those things, what's so ironic is every poll in America says that there is a tremendous spiritual hunger in America today. Many call it the God rush, kind of like the gold rush of the 1800s. There's a God rush on. People want to make contact with God. They want to have a spiritual experience. They want God's companionship. They want His reassurance. But what they don't want is to admit that they have a problem. That's what our world doesn't want. We've been so self-esteemed that to say what's wrong with us is an anathema. And yet it's the very thing that keeps us from what we really want to have. And that's a relationship with God. You know, the book of Romans literally shouts to us in these opening three chapters in no uncertain terms that sin is the problem. Your thoughts, your nasty little secrets, your hypocrisies, your immoralities. God says, don't you understand? I see all that. I take all that into account. I understand your condition. And you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to do what Tom Hanks did in Apollo 13. He wants us to say, Houston, we have a problem. And he wants us to understand it is a huge problem. It's something that doesn't get expounded enough. Our alienation from an absolutely moral God and any relationship we yearn for with God is impossible until that sin issue is dealt with before Him. That's what brings us to Romans 4. Because in Romans 4, notice the statement there in verse 7. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Yeah, that's right. That's where it starts. And so Romans 4 introduces us to this great doctrine of justification. How we're made right. But the question is, how do we achieve that forgiveness? How do we get our sins covered? How do we stand before God with all that's in us and feel assured? Romans 4 says, listen, you will never, ever be acceptable to God by trying to clean up your act. You will never, ever get to God trying to work at it. Let Luther's life be an example to you. You'll never be good enough. Not before absolute morality. And our world, though they want God so desperately, they will never get there unless they walk this road that Romans sets forth.
So what's the answer? Well, that brings us to our chapter. Chapter 5. In fact, I can sum it up and look at verse 6 of chapter 5. It's just simply this. It says, For while we were still helpless, that's us, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. You see, only by embracing Christ's death for our sins, because remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And either you die, and if you die for your sins, you're doomed, but if He dies for you, you're delivered. It's only by embracing Christ's death for our sins do we become free to pursue an authentic relationship for the very first time with God. Justification is the door through which, the small door, through which every person must walk. And I, I wanted to take the time to go back through that, to re-engage Romans, because until we are clear about what justification means, we can never go on into Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, which talk about how to live the Christian life. Especially, we need to talk about that in light of an age which doesn't assent to absolute moral truth and somehow assumes, your friends assume that they're going to be okay with God. Let the whole world know that's a tragic assumption. Theologians call this great doctrine the doctrine of justification through Christ. Now as we enter Romans chapter 5, what Paul begins to do is link that doctrine of justification to the chapters that will now follow about perspectives in the Christian life that every Christian needs to clearly understand if we're going to live this life on earth effectively. Now here's what Paul wants to do in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5 if you're not already there. But what he wants us to do, he's going to help us kind of scope out in some big pictures this new spiritual life that justification has now ushered us into. And he's going to give us two very important angles on this Christian life that we need to understand. The first angle is what I call the angle from the high side. It's what on your outline is labeled the glorious overview. And then he's going to turn and give us a different angle on the Christian life, which I think is from the hard side. He's going to give us a hard process. So first I want to look at this kind of glorious overview of the Christian life. Follow along with me in verses 1 through, and watch this progression of the high side of the Christian life. Here's what he says. Therefore, now he's summing up. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope, the hope of the glory of God. Now in just two short verses, what he's done is summarize for us the Christian experience from the high side. And I want to take a moment just to review each of those terms that are listed in this progression that finally ends in hope. First of all, he says, therefore having been justified by faith, meaning we've come to God on His moral terms. I hope you've done that. Some of you come in from backgrounds where you've never understood these concepts of how you're reconciled with God. So you think going to church, Joining a church, a membership role, a baptism somehow reconciles you with God. That's Luther's mistake. On the other hand, there's some of you come in and you're excited about the worship here every week and the teaching and stuff, and you're just kind of rocking along, presuming that you're there. 
now. You have to come to God on His terms. We have to be justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore, starting out, having been justified, that's the first step. Then we go on, we have peace with God. Finally, we're not always wondering, are we there? That's what a lot of New Agers get so irritated with Christians because they're trying to move into a deeper experience, a connection with God, and Christians simply assume they have peace with God. And that irritates them. And we're not assuming we've arrived, but we understand we've been reconciled. We have peace with God. It's like, you know, in Arkansas, we get the property tax every year. And doesn't it feel good when you pay that property tax and you send it off, they send you back a little slip and it's got this red ink over it that says paid in full. And so you drive around Little Rock, now at least I do. After I have that little slip, I drive around and when a police officer pulls up behind me, I'm not worried if he's looking at my tags and they're out of date because I couldn't get them renewed because I didn't pay my property tax. And so I still felt obligated to the government and there was that kind of heavy feeling. Some of you probably don't feel that guilt, but I do. But then the day comes where I get back paid in full and I put those stickers on and all of a sudden I have peace with my local government. I feel good about myself driving around town. When I see the police officer, I smile because I've been reconciled. No obligations. I'm in harmony. It's the same way here. When we understand what's happened to us, we're not worried about how God feels about us because we've been justified in the standing of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We're not worried about what we have to do to get there. We're not wondering what he thinks about what we've done or how he feels about us at the moment or what might happen if we fall. No, we have paid in full written over our hearts and we have peace with God. All that's been assured, if you'll notice at the end of that little statement, through, it says, through, not us, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it ties Jesus Christ to the next step up the ladder, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. That's the next step up in the Christian life. And I want you to know that probably the greatest moment in my Christian life was when I began to understand the concept of grace. That life was not all on me. That there is a God who wants to give me life and who actually brings to me life. There's an actual life experience going on between me and the living God who can give me kind of these new life-giving perspectives that regardless of my world says, when I get those perspectives, I feel free. I feel liberated. He answers my prayers. In fact, not only that, but most of the most exciting things that I've ever experienced in life, I didn't earn. Most of the best of life has been brought into my life. Now some could say by coincidence, no, I say by the sovereign act of a God who's gracious towards me. So it becomes liberating. You begin to feel like you've got a partner in life. You're moving through this life. Things aren't by random or happenstance or accident. But there's a plan. And what incredible reassurance that is when you know it's a plan of grace. Which leads to the next step, in which we stand. That means standing firm in grace. Now, that's a real step up of maturity. Not all of us are there. I sometimes wonder if I'm there. He says in which we stand, but that's a wonderful place to be, to be standing in grace. That's kind of a high place of Christian maturity in which we begin over time to see God as we look back do some amazing things. Our personal priorities are rearranged. Our marriages are reconstructed. Our likes and dislikes change. 
Our wants and desires are altered. We have pragmatic answers to prayer in which we see God do some incredible, powerful deliverances within our life. And we get this new vision and purpose of our life, and we've just had two couples who illustrate that out of what Jesus Christ has done in their life to change Jerry, who was with Xerox, wasn't it, Jerry? So now he's going to Asia. Grace in which we stand. Some incredible things. And we just know it's God at work. Which leads us to kind of the highest plane where we begin to rejoice in hope concerning a glory that we now know is one day coming. A glory that we've only sampled in this life. You know, it's like going to Baskin-Robbins. You walk into Baskin-Robbins and you look at all the flavors and you say, could I taste that? Could I taste this? And they take that little scoop and they taste it. And you taste it, and boy, when I get the, when I get the uh, cookie dough, I just go, I just, could I get fudge on that? It just, I get so excited. <laughs> you know? But you know, what I think of is the Christian life, this life, at this time, till death, is like being in Baskin-Robbins, just sampling those things, and they taste so good, but what does that inspire? It inspires hope, doesn't it? Of a greater glory. You know, when there, there are people in this audience who look back over their lives and they have seen God work in such ways that regardless of what happens to them now, they're filled with hope because they've tasted just the little spoonfuls of God's grace. And they're so excited about the glory to come. You know, when astronomers look up at the glories of the heavens, Actually, they're not looking up at all. You know what they're doing? They're looking down into a great polished mirror that simply reflects that glory. It's the same way with the Christian life. You know, when the Christian wants to know about the glory to come, the mature Christian, he doesn't look up in the heavens. He looks down within his own life. And what he sees over a period of time are the glimpses of the glory to come. That's exciting stuff, isn't it? It's a great overview. You want to step back for a moment in reverence and just go, wow, for those who get to that place. You see, these two verses give us this overview after justification. But now there's the other angle. Okay, you ready for the other angle? Because suddenly things change real quick. Now we go through what I call the hard angle, the hard process. What starts verse 3 is what I call public enemy number one in stunning a Christian's growth process of going on with Jesus Christ. And I want you to circle the word because it should be really in all capital letters, but it says, and not only this, verse 3, we also rejoice or exult and, and get this, we rejoice and what's the word we rejoice in? Tribulations. You know what's bad about that? It's in the plural. I don't mind it. It was just singular. I could get through it. But it's got an S on it. And it's not for Superman. It's for heartache. There's trouble ahead. This word tribulations is used 45 times in the New Testament. And it speaks to a wide band of tribulations. Sometimes it's used in relationship to temptation. Sometimes it's in relationship to persecution. People persecuting you for your faith. Sometimes it's used for poverty. You just run out of money. Tribulation. Sometimes it's used when you lose a loved one. 
Sometimes in 1 Corinthians, it's used of trouble with your mate. That's tribulation, sometimes with a capital T, right? That's what it's speaking of, a whole host of kind of tribulations. And what I've found is, especially for the young Christian, no matter how much you warn them, that as much as there's a grand overview of the Christian life, there's also a hard process to the Christian life. Life is hard. There's going to be rocks in the road. So this young Christian sets off on this kind of high note, freshly justified by faith, thinking he's going to be perpetually at peace with God. And he falls flat on his face when the first tribulation hits. And he has to reconsider what this whole Christian life was about. You know, if you notice in our passage, there's a real jolt in there from verse 2 to verse 3, where we rejoice in the glory of God till all of a sudden now we rejoice in our tribulations. Now, we'll talk about how you actually do that in a moment. But I just want to simply mention, no one likes tribulation. I don't like it. And yet, the Bible is replete with statements that tell us it's ahead. Jesus said point blank in John 16, to His disciples, He said, in this world you will have tribulation." Peter said, in 1 Peter 4, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you, as though some strange thing was happening to you. It's not strange at all. Tribulation is as natural as air. You don't escape it just because you become a Christian. And yet, regardless of the warnings you can give to believers, believers at times when tribulations come get locked up. Some of them are shocked when it hits. Some freeze up when it hits. Some of you blow up when it hits and shake your fist at the heavens because you thought this was heaven and God keeps saying, no, this is earth. And then some of you throw down your weapons and you run back to the enemy side. You come, become part of the unbelieving community for a while. Because you think, this is not what I bargained for. I was looking for the American dream, not for the kingdom. And now we have to reinvent our whole understanding of what we meant by Christianity. And some of us twist it and try to make it something it isn't. And some of us finally yield and allow God to have His way. And what we find that even the hard process is a road to glory. Even it. I want you to look at verses 3 through 5 and follow this progression that happens on the hard process side. He says, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulation knowing that tribulation brings about... Well, here's what tribulation does. It brings about perseverance. And perseverance then leads to proven character. And proven character leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now I want you to circle a word back up in verse 3. It's the word knowing. It's so important. The knowledge that's found here, Paul is trying to tell us in advance, is incredibly important to us after justification. Rather than being discouraged by trials, the information that Paul gives here will in time actually, if we keep at it, actually cause us to rejoice in our trials. 
Because God now is on our side, and trials are not to be considered destructive, but instead, I want you to listen closely, what Paul is hinting at here is that tribulations are held sovereignly in the hands of a God who wisely and skillfully reshapes our lives into His image. You see the process there? Tribulation, the perseverance, the proven character, to hope the same way the high side led. For any Christian that that's hard to believe at times when you're in the midst of it. I'm still trying to figure it out at times. I don't like it. But I want you to notice that the knowing believer understands that tribulation will lead to perseverance because life is by faith. And you hang in there and you begin to see God is at work. And all of a sudden you wake up one day if you persevere and your character is actually different. You're beginning to respond in a whole different way. And proven character is... And this is what's so important for you to understand. That's the only thing God is after in this life with you. It's not your success. It's not your comfort. It's only one thing, that you develop a character, a godly character. And if you develop that godly character, then what that will lead to is hope. And the reason it leads to hope is because you look back on all that you've been through and you realize God really does know what He's doing. He really is at work. And where I am now, I wouldn't trade anything for, even though the process was so tough. That's what this is talking about. Well, if we could just buy this process on the front end, wouldn't it be good? If we could just buy into it and understand it, we would be so different and so much more mature. It's like the lady who's in childbirth. No woman wants to go into childbirth. I mean, I don't know of any. My wife sure never liked it, and she did it four times. But you know what they do like? They like the outcome of childbirth. And they're willing to sacrifice themselves and persevere through that difficult nine months with an incredibly excruciating, painful end in order to have one thing, life. Did you know that's the exact same road God takes you down from just time to time? But it's not a road that's out of control, no matter how desperate it seems. It's a road for those who persevere to a greater life. Notice in verse 5 it says, And hope does not disappoint. The word literally means in Greek, it does not make you ashamed. The end point of any tribulation is not that you're in going, Gosh, I wish I hadn't have done this. The end point of any process that God puts you through is hope. Because after you've walked through that fiery furnace, after you've faithfully responded to Him and His Holy Spirit, you will see how necessary that was to get you where God needed you to be. A hope which says now, God really is for me. God really is leading me. God really does love me. And if God hadn't have put me through this, I would have never come to a place where I appreciate Him, His kingdom, and what He does for me. Before we go into Romans 6, 7, and 8, we have to get that clear. The high side and the hard side. Now that brings us to the final verses, verses 6 through 10, where really what they only are are just logical reassurances of what I just told you. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, do you see the logic there? 
Here's the logic, if you didn't catch his argument. He says, if Christ died for you, you who were in verse 6 helpless, verse 6 ungodly, verse 8 sinners, if He went to that kind of effort when you had no interest in Him, no thought of Him, in fact, you presume you were okay with Him, and yet He still died for you. If He went to that length to get you to Himself, then how much more interest do you think He now takes in you? How much more concern do you think He has for you? How much more investment does He have in you to make you what He wants you to be? He's done all of that to get you into a process where He can make you like Himself to usher you into the grandest of eternities. He repeats it again in verse 10. Notice He says, For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. In other words, while we were enemies, He had His own Son put to death for us. Now do you think, after He goes to that length of putting His Son to death for you, that now He would usher you into a process to destroy you? It makes absolutely no sense. That's why trials for the Christian are not to give Him what He deserves. Trials for you is to give you what you don't deserve a new life, a transformed character, hopefully over time with glory and honor and a sense of reward at the end. That's what all this process is about, and it's all at His expense. That's what trials are about. And that's why this perspective is absolutely critical if you're going to embrace and persevere, because some of you right now are in desperate trials. I know it. And you want to jump ship or freeze up or lock up or blow up. But you desperately need to hear that God has ushered you into a life that He's justified and now He wants to develop and He'll use the high side and the hard side to get you there. All that after your entrance by faith in His justifying hand through Christ. And whether it be from the high side or the hard side, do you see on these diagrams where both end up? It's so important that you see where they both end up. They both end up in hope. And what do you hope for? Real hope, when you have actually experienced real hope, what you're hoping for is more. More of what you've got. And you're not hoping at the bottom for more trials, but what you've experienced and the outcome, you hope for more of that character, more of that transformation. On the high side, you hope for more of that glory of seeing God work in your life. Both roads lead to hope. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know everything, everything I have told you here this morning I've personally experienced as a Christian to one degree or another. I've been personally saved from God's wrath by Christ's blood. I know that. And I am being saved right now by Christ's life. Right now I'm being saved, transformed. As He is at work within me and He uses a whole range of circumstances. And I know that and sometimes I don't like it. But He's using them all, I believe to make me like Himself. Our world doesn't buy that. And it never will. But I want you to know, those of you who name the name of Christ, woe to anyone who breathes His last and departs this earth without it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning 
for these incredible truths, these overviews of what it means to go from justification to beyond. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I know that there are so many of them here who circumstances and trials have broken out and they go, if my wife would just do this, or my husband would just do that, or if I just had a little more money, and we're working at it so hard to be delivered, when the reality is, is that you're at work within us to change us, not to change our mate, not to change our finances, not to change our worries, to change us. Help us to endure and help us to persevere so that we can reach the island of hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Questions now before I dismiss you. Here are the three questions. First, are you justified? Let me tell you, that is such an eternal question. And, and I want you to know, as a pastor operating in a pluralistic world with secularistic values, that is an absolutely penetrating question that I don't expect at times for, for some of you who are not justified to even feel. feel, feel because we have been so conditioned and numbed out to sin that we don't understand our alienation from God. But I want you to understand the truth of God has been set before you. And if you're here today, and the question of, am I justified? Have I ever come to God on His terms recognizing that I'm a sinner? That there are those things in my life. I can't ignore that. And I need to feel at peace with God. There's only one way to do that, and that's through faith and understanding what Jesus Christ did for you. If you have questions there, then I'm going to be there. And I would love to meet with you and just take the time to visit and interact with you about your questions or talk to you about your heart's desire, where you are. But please hear me. If you're a pilgrim in this life knowing that one day you will be extinguished, don't you want to know what happens then? And wouldn't you like to have reassurance of what that would mean? These are eternal questions. That's the whole purpose of faith, is to understand how we get reconciled with God. Second question is this. And this is for all of us. Do we understand the divine purpose behind all trials? Let me tell you, that is so important. I meet with people all the time in my office, and they're always focused outward. And you know what they're saying? If this would change, if he would change, if they would change, if they would do something for me, we're such a victim mentality. If all these things would change, then I would be okay. Here's what I want you to know. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. The whole purpose of those things, if you name the name of Christ, is that He is at work within you to transform your character. And only until those things are changed will some of those pressures be relieved. But they'll be relieved from the inside out. They never get relieved from the outside in. Then here's the last question for you. Last question is this. What does it take to have joy? You know what's interesting about this passage, as hard as maybe it sounded, all through the passage, Paul's saying we exult. Did you notice that? We exult. The word means to rejoice in triumph. All through the passage, he's really talking about being joyous. And yet, people are happy, but very few people are joyous. I want to give you the answer to the last question before I dismiss you. You know what it takes to have joy? 
You must learn. You must learn, and, and it starts by faith, to trust the God who is at work in you. And recognize that there will be, if God is really who He said He is, not one thing that will overtake you that isn't within His control, His sovereign shaping, to move you to places that He wants you to be at and to interact with you in such a way that He can remake you after His Son Jesus. That's the path to real joy. And only few find that narrow way. I hope you will discover at least another step in the road of that way this week. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.